Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. That's 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to make things better. How are you today? Welcome to today's program. Um, did a really cool... Uh, no, the program is not on Tuesdays anymore, um, but I just haven't had time to change the intro to this program yet. Um, yes, that tells you I'm crazy busy these days. Um, one of the things I was crazy busy doing was uh, this past Saturday in Bedford, Massachusetts, and collaboration with the Bedford Special Education Parent Advisory Committee, um, CPAC, as they call it. Um, We did a uh, special training for parents in Bedford this past Saturday and had lots of parents show up and I hope get a lot out of the day. Um, It was a blast for me and I hope people got a lot out of it. Um, I I'm always getting a lot out of it myself just because I'm always being reminded of what parents need more of from Lives in the Balance and more of from me to help them get good at using collaborative problem solving. Um, I think I'll touch on some of those things today. Um, One of the, but but we also have a lot of uh, uh, questions to get through from people who have uh, uh, sent in questions through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. Um, we don't have any callers yet, but if you do have a question or comment to make, uh, that number once again is 347-994-2981. That's uh, the best thing about doing a live program is that people can call in and get their questions answered and get the support they need to well, and get the help they need uh, to parent their behaviorally challenging child more effectively. So there's, uh, in particular, two things that I wanted to cover that came up during the um, during the uh, workshop that I did for parents uh, on Saturday in Bedford, Massachusetts. Um, one. People are having some difficulty wording unsolved problems on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. That's hard for people. It's hard for everybody. Um, And um, we practiced it a little bit, and people seem to get increasingly better at it. But I thought, you know what, since this is um, fresh in my mind, uh, let's go over it on the radio program today, too. Um, as you may know, the asse- if, if you don't know, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which you can find in the paperwork section of the resources section of the Lives in the Balance website, that's where you will be getting to know your kid through the prism 
of lagging skills. It's where you'll be identifying the skills that your child is lacking. And it's those skills that are making it difficult for your child to respond adaptively to many of the demands that are being placed upon him or her. If your child had those skills, you'd be seeing those skills. It's lagging skills that are what set the stage, that contribute at least, to challenging behavior in kids. But the second thing you're doing with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is identifying unsolved problems. And that's where life can get much more interesting. I find that people don't have too much difficulty checking off the skills that their child is lacking. And that's a good thing because um, if their child is lacking skills, number one, you want to know about it. But number two, knowing that your child is lacking skills, good to know which skills your child is lacking and also way better to say that your child is lacking skills than to say that your child is manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, unmotivated, limit-testing, pushing your buttons, yanking your chain, all of those things that are said about behaviorally challenging kids that aren't true. Um, one of the biggest, most important pieces of work that can be done to help a behaviorally challenging child is help the people who are living with and working with that child get to know the kid through the prism of lagging skills. And although although it can be a little disheartening to know that your child is lacking some important skills, my attitude, better to know it than not to know it, but as I've already said, also better to know it than to continue saying a lot of those things about your child that head you in the wrong direction. But then comes the hard part, identifying unsolved problems. Unsolved problems are the specific conditions in which your child is having difficulty meeting your expectations. The, the specific conditions in which the demands being placed upon your child outstrip the skills your child has to respond adaptively to those demands. In other words, the specific conditions in which your child is looking bad. So what your child is doing to look bad, hitting, spitting, kicking, throwing, destroying, running, cutting, panic attacking, obsessing, those are not the unsolved problems. Those are the behaviors your child exhibits in response to the unsolved problems. The unsolved problems are the specific expectations your child is having difficulty meeting. So if your child is throwing things when you are demanding that he or she brush his or her teeth. Throwing things is not the unsolved problem. Difficulty brushing teeth is the unsolved problem. So it's the expectation, not the behavior your child is exhibiting when he or she is having difficulty meeting the expectation. Um, so that, that speaks to one rule of thumb when you're writing in unsolved problems. Unsolved problems should be free of maladaptive behavior because the behavior is not the unsolved problem. Uh, unsolved problems should also be free of adult theories. One of the things we talked about on Saturday at the special training for parents is that um, we adults love, and I mean love, to theorize about why a child is having 
difficulty with a particular expectation, we fall in love with our theories. We actually think they're true, when in fact, in most cases, they're not true. Uh, One of the things I am constantly in touch with is how often adults are wrong about what they think is getting in the child's way. Luckily, when it comes to the child meeting certain expectations, luckily, we don't want to include any theories in the unsolved problem either. No theories. Unsolved problems are free of adult theories. So in other words, we wouldn't say uh, difficulty brushing teeth because um, he had a forceps delivery. No, we wouldn't put that in. Difficulty brushing teeth because he's adopted. We wouldn't put that in either. Difficulty brushing teeth is the unsolved problem, at least so far. We're going to actually make that unsolved problem more specific in a few minutes. So no theories. Unsolved problems are also split, not clumped. Uh, Here's a good example of a clumped unsolved problem. (laughs) Difficulty brushing teeth. Uh, I'd want to add some details about that. Difficulty brushing teeth every time. Difficulty brushing teeth in the morning. Difficulty brushing teeth before bed. What you're hearing me doing is I'm adding different times of the day in there is I'm splitting it. Because I, believe it or not, wouldn't want to assume that the child is, believe it or not, is having difficulty brushing his teeth in the morning for the same reasons that the child is having difficulty brushing his teeth in the evening. They may, they may be, he may have different concerns and different things getting in the way during both times of the day. Don't know yet, but I'm going to split it, and then I'll find out. So, now my unsolved problem is difficulty brushing teeth before bedtime. Boy, now the child's really going to know what we're talking about. When we say, I've noticed that you have difficulty brushing your teeth before bedtime, what's up? And what I just demonstrated is the fact that the reason we want to be particular, the reason we want to be precise about our wording of the unsolved problem is because um, how we word it is going to translate directly into how we're going to introduce the child to the problem we want to solve with him when we're doing the empathy step of plan B. If the unsolved problem is vague or clumped or has an adult theory in it, or if we're throwing the child's behavior at him in the empathy step of plan B, in all those instances, we are reducing the likelihood that the child will actually talk to us. And we want him to talk to us because it's in the empathy step of plan B that we are gathering information about the child's concern or perspective on the unsolved problem we're trying to talk with him about. Anything we do that reduces the likelihood of the child talking to us and providing us with information increases the likelihood, decreases the likelihood that the child will talk with us, but also increases the likelihood that we will come up with solutions that are what I call uninformed. Not not only unilateral, that's plan A, 
but also uninformed. Solutions that we arrive at without enough information to actually begin thinking of solutions. All right, finally, another guideline. Unsolved problems should be as specific as possible, and we've done a little bit of this already, usually by including information about who, who is the child having the unsolved problem with, what, what is the unsolved, what is the child having difficulty with, um, where, when, where, where is this happening, when is this happening. And I've already added a where, when example to the difficulty brushing teeth unsolved problem, and difficulty brushing teeth is the what that the child is having difficulty with, not what is the child doing when he's having difficulty brushing his teeth, not hitting, screaming, swearing, but what expectation he's having difficulty meeting. All of this is worth the effort. This is hard. The wording of unsolved problems is hard, but really worth it because, um, well, we want the child to talk to us. And the more specific we can be about the unsolved problem, the more we can make sure that it is split, not clumped, the more we can keep out our theories, and the more we can keep from throwing the child's maladaptive behavior at him, which wasn't the unsolved problem in the first place, the greatly we increase, I don't know if that was good English, the, the greater the likelihood that the child will actually provide us with information in the empathy step of plan B, and we will finally be able to get this problem solved. So we talked a little bit about this and we practiced it and people saw their unsolved problems become much more specific before their very eyes. The other thing that came up that I thought was interesting and a lot of interesting things came up at the special workshop for parents that we just did, but another thing that came up was a mom who wanted to know if she could still keep some unsolved problems in Plan A. And I asked why she'd want to do that. And the unsolved problem we were talking about there was coming in from playing outside for dinner. Um, now, that sounded like one that could be done with plan B, but this question came up in the context of prioritizing. One of the things we don't want to do is be working on so many unsolved problems at once that we pretty much guarantee that we end up solving none of them at all because both we and the child are completely overwhelmed by the sheer number of things that we're working on. Um, so one of the uh, ones that mom wanted to keep in plan A was coming in for um, dinner when playing outside. I've got an email from one of our listeners saying that another advantage to splitting the unsolved problem is that it makes it a lot easier for the child to understand. Very good point. Um, I asked the mom why she'd want to keep that in plan A, um, and didn't necessarily completely understand why the mom would want to keep that in Plan A. It was still causing challenging episodes when she used Plan A on that. I wanted to know from mom why that was so important to her. I wasn't 
completely clear on that either. That's okay. But got a little bit more interesting when I mentioned that, number one, I don't know why that's an unsolved problem that couldn't be solved with Plan B. But, and Mom agreed that she was a little, what she called, type A about that. Um, hard to get away from Plan A when you are type A, but... And I can't say I understood completely why Mum felt strongly that that should be Plan A, but I thought I noticed a bit of a shift when I mentioned the possibility of Plan C on that unsolved problem. Now, that was interesting because I'm not usually... Well, actually, that's not true, but um, what I was about to say is I'm not usually in the habit of trying to help people move from Plan A to Plan C more often from plan A to plan B, just two different ways of solving the exact same problem. Plan A, of course, is unilateral. Plan B is collaborative, but in both circumstances, you're trying to solve the problem. But it's actually not true. I actually do have to help parents move some things that were in plan A into plan C, where they're just tabling the unsolved problem right now. They're not even working on it. And I demonstrated for the mum what that might sound like because I was demonstrating proactive Plan C. Here's proactive Plan C. You know how we're working on this unsolved problem, this other unsolved problem, and this other unsolved problem? Now, now we're working on three things at once, and we are... We filled our quota of things that we're going to be working on. I'm thinking that maybe we shouldn't be working on you coming in for dinner when you're playing outside. But so I'm not going to work on with you that that with you right now. Well, we're going to try to get some of these other things solved first. Um, what I'm wondering though is what should I do with your food when it's sitting on the table getting cold? when you're still playing outside because I'm not going to I'm not even going to call you in anymore um unless you kind of want me to but um and you also let me know if you want me to but if if you want me to I'm not going to like get all mad if you don't I'm just going to let it go if you don't um but what should I do with your food when it's sitting on the table cold That's an interim plan for what we're going to do in the meantime while we're busy not solving this problem, while we're busy working on other unsolved problems. Um, that's an option, too. And quite frankly, early on, when parents have been trying to solve so many things using Plan A, causing so many challenging episodes, not only do I try to get some of those unsolved problems that have been handled with plan A into plan B, trying to get some of those unsolved problems that have been handled with plan A into plan C as well, because we just cannot work on that many things at once. And yes, there is this ragged period when people are taking things out of them in A out of A and putting them in B and C, getting good at B, getting comfortable with C. There's this ragged period where people are feeling a little bit shaky because they are also shifting from 
the way they have been doing things and solving problems and dealing with their child to the new way of handling things and dealing with their child. And it's ragged early on. Plus, they're not even that good at Plan B yet. Um, one of the biggest advantages of Plan C is that it reduces the number of challenging episodes, and that usually has people feeling much better all by itself. We'll probably talk about this on the parents' panel next time we have the parents' panel. That would probably be on November 5th, our next parents' panel. But I'm sure many of you have seen this uh, story that I think was in the news last week of a... um, doctor who I believe is in Georgia, but I don't remember that part so well, who um, has been prescribing a stimulant medication, Adderall, for kids to help them do better in school, whether the kid is meeting diagnostic criteria for ADHD or not, because stimulant medications improve performance in just about everybody, not just behaviorally challenging kids. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about that on the parents panel, but the, the, you know, that's that's probably not ideal to be prescribing stimulant medication for kids who don't really need it. Of course, this doctor is making the case that even kids who don't meet diagnostic criteria for ADHD do need it, because, and this is a paraphrase of what the doctor said. He's not having any success getting schools to change. So he's finding that his only other option is to change the kid. Brought that up on Saturday as well. What a sad commentary. The truth is, the doctor, and I don't know him, so I don't know, maybe he's. this was actually the point he was trying to make. I, I don't know how seriously he takes the idea of prescribing stimulant medication for kids even if they don't meet diagnostic criteria for ADHD. Maybe he's just trying to make the point. Schools aren't changing. So I really have no other option except to change the kid. One of the things I've been saying in my workshops lately is that one plausible explanation for why there are more challenging kids than there have ever been, and that seems to be true. There's a lot of good reasons that there might be more challenging kids now than there have ever been. One is that people are much more diagnostically savvy now than they've ever been, and so they they recognize kids who aren't doing well and deviance in ways that weren't true 30 to 40 years ago. But here's another reason kids might be falling off the apple cart more readily than ever. And that, by the way, there's lots of explanations. Uh, we don't have the kind of community supports that we used to have. Communities were much more transient than we used to be. Kids used to have the protection of their community. Now we're so transient. Um, those community supports aren't there. But here's another reason. The earlier you demand skills, the earlier in development you demand skills from kids, the earlier and earlier that is, the 
earlier the age, the more kids are going to fall off the apple cart. The demands being placed on kids these days for achievement, for grades, for doing well on high-stakes testing, we are demanding more and more earlier and earlier. The more and the earlier you demand, the more kids are going to fall off the apple cart. Kids who might have been less vulnerable had the demands not been so great are falling off the apple cart now. Of course, the the very vulnerable kids were going to fall off the apple cart anyways. I'm talking about the kids who are less vulnerable but are nonetheless having demands placed on them that outstrip the skills they have to respond adaptively to those demands. That's when kids fall off the apple cart. All right, now you've been filled in on the various things that we covered on Saturday. Let's turn our attention to some questions here. And I'm not going to go in any particular order. I've got a bunch here to respond to, so here we go. Once again, uh, and we've only got about 20 minutes left in the program today, but if you do want to call in, if you're listening live, it's 347-994-2981. Here's an email. Dr. Green, I've been trying to use Plan B off and on. Not very consistent on my part. I have a goal to make this much better. What I've run into is that my kids think I'm a nag and don't like to sit down and talk, even when they are calm. They are uh, over it real fast, and we never get through the empathy step, so we can't even get much information about the problem. I also get a lot of silence, and I don't know. Uh, Do I stay silent? I try. Am I actually doing plan A? Not sure. I'm stumped on getting them to tell me what is truly bothering them, like cleaning rooms or doing schoolwork or caring for animals, which are things that really set my daughter off instead of me imposing my will on them. Help. Let's try. Um, All right, a few things. You know, I I always read these and then say to myself, um, what can we glean from what we've learned from the information you've given us? All right. Um, The not very consistent part is interesting because ideally what you want to do is have there be, and you might have this, I can't quite tell, two or three unsolved problems that you've prioritized, and you may also want to have a time that you're actually setting up with your child to do plan B. Um, although you're mentioning kids, so it sounds like you're doing it with more than one. But you want to make sure that you've got your two or three high-priority unsolved problems identified so that you don't perpetuate the nag reputation that you seem to have acquired. Nagging nagging is sort of a... Well, I've sometimes referred to it as a wimpy form of plan A, You're trying to impose your will, but what you're really doing is just reminding over and over and over again, sort of of no man's land when it's 
comes to the plans, but it comes closer to plan, certainly not plan B, certainly not plan C. You're not dropping it. That's what nagging tends to be, plan A, but a rather passive, half-hearted form of plan A. And um, people who nag, parents who nag, tend to nag about many, many, many different things. So we want to make sure that you have your list of high-priority unsolved problems and you know what you're working on, but you also know that what you're not working on. So we can get you, so we can at least make sure that we've got that piece covered in the nagging department. All right. Now, as for the rest of it, uh, and I'm glad you have the goal to make it much better. Me too. Um, your kids don't like to sit down and talk even when they are calm. Well, that's a theory, but we don't know if that's why you're not getting much out of them uh, in the empathy step of plan. But you said they're over it real fast. I don't know what that means. I wonder, well, I'm wondering about a few things, and this is theorizing too, but things to things to consider. Um, maybe their capacity for actually sitting there for long periods of time and engaging in conversation is limited. Maybe this is something they've never done before, and so they don't really have a very good sense about how long it's going to take to sit down and figure out what their concerns are. Um, maybe, and we covered this earlier in the program, maybe um, your wording of the unsolved problem is including behavior, challenging behavior. Maybe it's including adult theories. Maybe it's clumped and not split. Maybe it's not specific enough. It's too vague, and so they don't even know what it is that you want them to give you information about. And so you get nothing. Even parents who don't have reputations for being nags sometimes get nothing by mere virtue, in the empathy step, when they're asking the kid for information, by mere virtue of the fact that the unsolved problem included challenging behavior, included an adult theory, was split and not clumped, and wasn't specific enough. So big gut check there on your unsolved problems. And, of course, you are welcome to call into this program anytime you want and read me your list of unsolved problems. And I would be, and this goes for anybody, of course, and, I would be delighted to help you make those unsolved problems much more specific, split not clumped, theory-free, and behavior-free. Delighted to do that for anybody who calls in. That could be why you're getting a lot of silence, and I don't know. You're asking, you're saying, do you stay silent? You try. Well, now here's the interesting thing. If you've if the unsolved problem doesn't make any sense to your kid and though, so he or she doesn't have any idea what to say, then you could talk or you could be silent. They still don't know what you're asking about. Are you actually doing plan A? That depends completely on the wording. Uh, the empathy step begins with the words, I've noticed that the begin this introductory part of the empathy step where you're introducing the unsolved problem to your child begins with the words, I've noticed that, and ends with the words, what's up? And in between, you're putting the highly specific 
unsolved problem. I've noticed that it's been difficult for you to brush your teeth at night before bedtime. What's up? If that's what your wording sounded like, you were probably doing plan B. If that's not what your wording sounded like, you may have been doing plan A. If you want to call in and tell us what your wording sounded like, we'd be delighted to hear from you, and we'll tell you whether you're doing plan A or plan B right quick. It does look like you have you, you did include three unsolved problems in your email. Uh, cleaning rooms. Doing schoolwork. Doing schoolwork would be too vague. You'd want to be more specific than that. Specific assignments. Otherwise, that's clumped, not split. And caring for animals. If you have more than one animal and there's more than one thing involved in caring, then I would call that clumped and not split as well. I don't know. I'm starting to convince myself that maybe... Here's what I'd like you to do if you ever are tempted to call in. Try to try it again, but make sure that you've got unsolved problems that are behavior-free, free of maladaptive behavior, theory-free, especially split, not clumped, and especially specific. Let's see if we can help this go better without us even hearing from you directly. That's the most help I can probably give at the moment for why. No, oh, I, there's one other thing I should say. It, because you've mentioned that you have a reputation for being a nag, your, your child or children may not realize that when you're doing Plan B, you've got them on a completely different playing field. This is not what they're used to. But you might want to reassure them about that just so they know you're, and you might have done this already, but just so they know that we're on a different playing field now. Now, you can't say to them, I'm not doing plan A, because they would have no idea what you're talking about. But you can say, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not mad at you. You're not in trouble. I just want to understand Um, because that is the goal of the empathy step of plan B, to understand. So not only are you telling the truth, you also will have greatly increased the likelihood that your child will actually talk to you. So that's the best I can do based on what I'm gleaning from your email. But um, you should feel free to call into the program anytime you want to... um, clarify any of that that you wish for me. Let's move on to another one. Uh, Here we go. This summer, my 10-year-old son participated in a three-week summer camp program. After camp was over, the camp's director told me that the counselors only act on the behaviors that they witness. Now, I'm going to come out of the this email for a second. Why would you only act on the behaviors that you witness? You don't always witness unsolved problems, but that doesn't make them any less unsolved problems. Okay, back to the email. I learned that my son had gone to counselors several times to report instances of alleged bullying, only to find that the counselors did not address these instances 
with the other children involved at all, but instead attempted to distract my son from the issue that he had brought up and otherwise avoided addressing the issue with the child that my son alleged was bullying him. Made my son more upset, and then he was punished for becoming more upset. My question is, is this a known appropriate method of addressing conflicts that were not witnessed? Known appropriate? Uh, you know, I have heard of people doing things this way. Is it appropriate? Um I would call it known inappropriate more than known appropriate. Back to the email. I worry that this approach, A, illustrates to the bully that if they act when no counselor is watching, there will be no repercussions. I completely agree with you, although I'm not necessarily interested in there being repercussions. B, it reduces the self-esteem of the bullying victim to see that he is his bringing it to the attention of a counselor doesn't really matter apart from potentially landing him in trouble. Well, I, mm, and C, it, it may even suggest to the victim that bullying is the way of the world, and the only way to avoid this is to become a bully himself. Thank you, sir, for your thoughts on the matter. Well, thank you for calling me sir, I suppose. But now let's get down to it here. Um, No, I don't think that's the way to deal with it. But that's... I don't think that's the way to deal with it at all. You don't distract the bullies from the you don't distract the bullied from the fact that they are being bullied, and you don't fail to act when you have a kid who feels he's being bullied. Never. So we're on the same wavelength here. I'm not necessarily interested in making sure that there are repercussions for the bully. I'm interested first in gathering information from the bullied and then from the bully about what's going on here so that we can solve this problem. This is the interesting thing. I don't think I'm not sure that well first of all, sweep get under the rug. That's not going to solve the problem. And that's that's what we're interested in doing here. Solving the problem. Bullying is a problem that needs to be solved. I don't find that repercussions solve problems. Quite frankly, I worry that repercussions also just make bullies more skilled at going underground. I don't want to do anything that's going to make the bully more skilled at going underground. I know that's not the conventional wisdom these days. We have become very fond in many places of bullying the bullies as the way to get the bullies to stop bullying very common these days. I'm, I'm not... I think that what we know about bullies is that, number one, they have often been bullied. And so we believe, number two, that bullies are lacking crucial skills. I also have seen that the bullied are lacking crucial skills sometimes as well, often, in fact, most of the time, in fact. So here we have two kids who are lacking important skills who are interacting with each other in ways that are to the particular disadvantage of one of them, but may be a very maladaptive response to whatever is going on in his or her life on the part of the bully. 
Um, I don't think that sweeping it under the rug is wonderful for the self-esteem of the bullying victim, but nor do I think that kids who report bullying should get into trouble. That's just ludicrous. Ludicrous. Sounds to me like you may have had some counselors here who weren't sure how to handle it. That's what a lot of people do when they don't know how to handle it. They try to distract the kid and basically let the kid know that it's not that big of a deal. Well, if it wasn't that big of a deal, he, of course, wouldn't be coming to the counselors to tell them that um, it was a big deal. Kid feels like it's a big deal. It's a big deal. We don't want to distract the kid. We don't want to dismiss his concerns. We don't want to diminish the importance of his concerns. We would never want to do that. That's what gets kids to stop talking to us. That. So, yeah, if the adults who the kid reports bullying to do not respond, the kid's going to be less likely to report bullying. And yes, as in your last point, I suppose that would send the message to the kid that the best response to bullying is to become a bully, just become the dog with the bigger bark and the bigger bite. And, um, well, I I think I watched a vice presidential debate last Tuesday night that had dogs barking at each other, but I didn't really learn a whole lot from that, nor do I think many problems got solved that way. I think that if a kid who's being bullied comes to somebody with their concerns, they got to do something about it. And, you know, the newfound focus on bullying and the mandates that have been being passed in legislatures in different states that mandate people to act when they find out that a kid is being bullied and that requires school systems to have an anti-bullying program, all that is great because um, letting people know you got to act is actually a good thing. What form many of those anti-bullying programs have taken, that's a completely different story. Most of them have become punitive. That's kind of schools saying, well, we have to create a program, so we'll create a program that looks pretty much like the other things we do when we are trying to deal with kids who have behavioral challenges. So that's a shame that they've turned out that way, but... Um, well, not necessarily surprising. But I think that we have enough evidence also, and the tragedies are the ones that make the newspapers, of course, that kids who are being bullied and when the bullying doesn't relent, yeah, I suppose some of them become bullies, but I think most of them take it hard internally and aren't exactly sure what to do. And the tragic outcomes that occur from that, once again, those are the ones that make the newspapers, but you got a lot of kids out there who are being treated badly by other kids. And I suppose we could call that bullying if we wanted to. And who um, just live that way. There is no relief. That they don't and their lives because of it. But they're miserable. And they don't feel like there's any help. And that's always a shame. Interestingly enough, it's not just kids who are bullied who feel that way. There's a lot of kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges who aren't bullied. 
but who feel like their voices aren't being heard, who feel like adults are not taking their concerns seriously or into account, who feel like their concerns are being dismissed, discarded. That's why there's the empathy step of Plan B. Whether it's a kid who's being bullied or a kid who's lacking skills in the domains of flexibility, adaptability, frustration, tolerance, and problem solving, we have the technology to make sure these kids are heard. We have the technology to work on these problems with them and feel like their concerns will be addressed and that they will get some relief. And that's why we do this radio program every week to help people get good at it. Unfortunately, this radio program is now over for today, but don't worry. I'll be back again next week, and we'll do the same thing all over again. Until then, take care.